You're listening to Life After Berkeley. I'm Curtis Killian. On today's episode, alumnus David Rosenthal, musical director and keyboardist for Billy Joel. David Rosenthal, 1981 Berkeley alumnus. Thank you for uh, joining us today. You're back artist residency in mm-hmm. Boston. Um, do you want to start off explaining your journey upon leaving Berkeley and how you became the musical director for Billy Joel? Well, it's been quite a quite a journey, uh, fun and exciting one, uh, quite a quite a road. When I was uh, just finishing up here at Berkeley, uh, I got a chance to audition for Rainbow and joined uh, with uh, Richie Blackmore's mm-hmm. band and uh, got that gig and that was sort of my first big uh, venture out there into the into the world and started off doing a record with them and, uh, and doing arenas and then continued on to another record, another tour and uh, that really sort of got the ball rolling and things started to snowball from there um, and uh, and just kind of grew from there. I went on to uh, I did a uh, short tour with Little Steven and then I joined Cindy Lauper's band, I did her True Colors world tour uh, Robert Palmer did his Heavy Nova World Tour, um, and uh, along the way doing lots of studio work with lots of different artists. Um, of course, Steve Vai and I used to have a band together here at Berkeley, and uh, so I've continued to stay in touch with him and played on some of his records, and uh, we're still good buds. Um, and I also toured with Enrique Iglesias, and then of course Billy Joel. Uh, done my own projects along the way. Happy the Man, I have my own band, Red Dawn as well. Um, and lots of other artists and different things along the way. Ingvay Malmsteen um, uh, orchestrated a concerto for him, uh, do synth programming for Bruce Springsteen, just lots of different types of things with a lot of different people. But uh, now my uh, time with Billy Joel has been uh, within 23 years at this point. So and it's been a really, really great run. Wow, I see you've been playing indefinite shows at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it's the first of its kind residency at Madison Square Garden, and uh, you know we're doing shows there for as long as demand continues. And uh, in a couple of weeks from now, we'll be our twenty seventh uh, show there, uh, all sellouts, and we're sold out through the end of this year already. Um, and so we're going to at least do thirty six of them there, and who knows if it's going to even continue beyond that? It, it might. That just the demand has not slowed down even. A little bit. It's it's just remarkable, the uh, the enthusiasm of uh, of the New York fans uh, for for Billy. I mean, worldwide he he has that incredible appeal, but uh, particularly New York, it's a kind of like home field advantage. Now, what goes into helping produce a show like that and directing the music for an artist like Billy Joel, particularly for these huge shows? I know you just mentioned playing Fenway again. Well. Yeah, we're doing Fenway Park here, which is really cool for the third summer in a row. And uh, um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, you know, there's a lot of preparedness. No two shows with him are identical. Uh, we do a lot of the songs that people recognize, but the uh, catalog of songs that we have to be prepared to play, uh, I think we've got like, you know, 85-something songs like that, that uh, from my perspective had to all be programmed and, for, you know, from a keyboard point of view, but also the band has to be rehearsed and ready to, ready to do it. And when we don't have time to rehearse, we have to, you know, do it on the fly and an extended sound check or do whatever needs to be done to... To you know, bring a new one into the um, uh, into the fold. You know, one of the exciting things about playing at Madison Square Garden, all these shows, is it gives us a chance to do some of the more obscure things that you don't normally get to do because a lot of the fans do come back uh, and they like hearing some of the stuff that he hadn't played in 20, 30 years or something. So we dust off some of these classics and, and do them for the first time, and it's it's a lot of fun and a big challenge to do that with little or sometimes practically no rehearsal. We have to go up and just nail it. So uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. 
how has technology impacted your career in particular with synth technology and uh, what did you learn here at Berkeley that helped you? Well, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm on the cutting edge of technology now, but everything that I'm using, every single item that I use, every piece of gear did not exist when I was here at Berkeley. But what I was, what I was fortunate to receive in, in my education here was all the concepts of how things work and the why of how things work, which enabled me to adapt to uh, whatever technologies came along after I left here. Inside of every piece of software that you use today, under the hood, it's the same concept. The importance is to really get a good ground level understanding of the theoretical hows and whys of things working because that will most likely remain the same even though the methodology of doing it might be completely different once they're out in the world. So I try to pass that along to the younger students today. Yeah, I feel like today there's probably a lot of people are disconnected from the evolution of the technology maybe take it for granted a lot of this digital well sure we're, well, like we're in the day of, of instant gratification you know along with all the power that's in the new instruments today there's also the instant gratification of push a button and it sounds cool uh, so uh, but you know it's 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 a, it, there's so much wonderful technology happening now in, in music it's really a, an exciting time to be involved in it are there any highlights from your time while you were here at Berkeley that's and I know you said you were in a band with Steve I and, sure and uh, and I got to see him with a uh, uh, Zappa plays Zappa. You blew my mind. I mean, did you have an inkling of the success that both of you would um, achieve? Well, I mean, he. Everybody knew he was a great player, and uh, we had a bunch of great players in the band that we had, and we did some really cool stuff. We played some Zappa. We played some Happy the Man. We played some of his songs. We played some of my songs. We played a lot of different things. And actually, uh, I believe it was Steve's tape of our band that got him his initial audition with Frank Zappa. Oh wow! Um, and uh, the rest, you know, went on to become history. Uh, but no, he's a remarkable talent, and he and I have remained really good friends all through the years, and I've uh, been uh, fortunate to play on some of his records, and we, we, still, we still keep him in close touch. And it's, it's, you know, that relationship, along with many, many others that I, that I made um, here while at Berkeley, is also a big part of uh, what Berkeley has to offer, is the people that you meet and come in contact with. And, uh, you know, everybody who comes to Berkeley is sort of, you know, the great uh, talent from their hometown. And then you come here and, and, and everybody converges and uh, the competition is, is pretty fierce and really, it really pushes you in a, in a good way to be everything that you're capable of being. You've had to deploy a lot of uh, versatility in playing such eclectic music. Um, have you always been open to various styles or did you have like a particular love? I love all t different types of music as long as it's well done. <laughs> uh, no, so so I you know I grew up on rock and roll and of course prog rock and then I was exposed to a lot of jazz here uh, and and synthesis. Uh, Tomita was a big influence on me and of course I, I came up as a classical pianist as well. So I love that type of stuff and I just you know really love going from one thing to the next and and being able to to do all different types of projects not only stylistically musically but also to work on some project as a synth programmer or an orchestrator or a producer or a keyboard player or a piano whatever whatever the, the or producer there's a lot of different things that I'm able to do and I've been fortunate to do uh, all of it throughout uh, my career so it's, it's, it's been um, it's been a good run. <laughs> Do you have any advice for students who are looking to become, say, a musical director? My advice to students today is, you know, just be a sponge and uh, just learn everything you possibly can. No matter what you try to do, no matter how hard you may try, you cannot script how your career is going to go. And um, all I knew is that I wanted to be a musician and, and um, you know, I couldn't have scripted how it all fell into place. 
but you know you roll with it and you go here there's an opportunity here there's an opportunity there and, and you roll with it so uh, my advice is to learn as many different skills as you can while you're here because when it Opportun when an opportunity does come along, you may not have time to prepare for it. Most likely, you you won't. So um, dedicate the time and really immerse yourself in in, uh, in everything that you can get out of the school here. It's a great place to. And what are your impressions uh, on how it's changed since you've graduated? It's amazing. Yeah, I mean the the the, the school has grown so much. The, not only in size, but in terms of the facility that it offers, and uh, it's really there's, there's so many state-of-the-art uh, technologies that are available to students today, and it's just exciting to come back and see how much it's uh, it's expanded. Uh, really, really uh, gone far beyond my wildest dreams of what the school could have become. It's it's, it's really exciting. Could you dig in a little bit more, like what a day in the life of a musical director? Um, it seems like the roles vary depending on the artist. Sure. Yeah. Well, no two MD jobs are the same, uh, but uh, you know, typically the MD is the liaison between the artist and the band, and uh, uh, so it's one phone call for him to make to uh, to if he wants the band to learn a certain song or if he wants to change the way we're doing something or those types of things. And uh, uh, Billy doesn't like to come to rehearsals or sound checks very often. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't so in his absence I, I run the band and organize the sound checks and uh, you know uh, rehearse the band and uh, keep in touch with everybody to keep things rolling uh, I write charts when they're needed I make sure everybody has uh, a song if they need to learn something um, uh, off of a record and it's something that they may not have or whatever I make sure everybody has that uh, just kind of overseeing the the whole thing and uh, keeping the train on the track so to speak um, and uh, you know, I'm very fortunate in, in Billy's band, we have such incredibly talented musicians. Uh, so it's really just a question of just sort of, you know, keeping the reins on it and uh, um, making sure that the, that the show is the way Billy wants it to be. Um, so there's, there's, there's some organizational things. Uh, once we're at this point in the tour, we're sort of in cruise control, except when we learn new songs. Uh, and then, of course, I have to keep after myself to stay on top of all the sounds that need to be created as, uh, on the keyboard player side of my role. Um, so uh, I wear a lot of different hats. Um, we did uh, a string quartet uh, joined us last year, so it was my job to create to write the charts, and then I conducted the uh, the orchestra. I get to a lot of do uh, extra things uh, like that in, in this job. So it's it's really it's really great. And, uh, Billy's music is, is is really a lot of fun to work on. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. After all these years, I still still really enjoy it. Um. So what's next? You're going to continue uh, touring with Billy Joel. Are there any other plans recording projects? At this point, he's just doing the residency, and we do a few other shows per month. Uh, and uh, so the schedule is nice, and it gives us all time to do other other projects and stuff. I'm working uh, uh, as a musical director and producer for Ethan Bordnick, who's a child prodigy that I'm working with, um, and uh, a bunch of other artists that I'm doing. Uh, I'm also correcting Billy's entire sheet music catalog, which is a, a daunting task. Uh, a lot of his music that's been in print for all these years has a lot of wrong notes and missing measures and whatnot. And uh, so I'm going through the whole thing, uh, album by album, and, uh, and correcting it. Um, so that's that, that's sort of like a uh, an ongoing project. And uh, well, I have a couple other things in the fire, which kind of can't be talked about yet. But there's 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 lots of different things always going on, and I'm always busy in my studio and always do just there's more things to do than I have time. Uh, so that's a good problem to have. Yeah, and I, I read that you uh, had perfect pitch in here at Berkeley. I'm sure that's come in handy, particularly uh, fixing all these mistakes in the catalog. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a lot. That's a lot of transcription and stuff, and uh, and putting you know particularly not only capturing. 
the essence of the songs for the sheet music, but in his signature piano parts, uh, you know, those parts need to be in the music. That's how the song goes. Um, and a lot of them were left out. Uh, so I'm trying to put into all of the songs, along with the, the, the meat and potatoes of the song itself, the chords and the music and the melodies, a lot of the signature piano parts that are, that are you know, what makes up the essence of the song. Um, yeah, having perfect pitch definitely is a, is a good, uh, good help. But I don't know. I've never not had it, so I don't know how other people function. It's, but it's it's amazing to see what incredible ears people have without having perfect pitch. It's just a different way of hearing things. Um, but uh, so who's to say what's right or wrong? But it's it's um, when I was here at, at at school, and I had to learn to hear relatively, which was new for me at that time. So, you know, if somebody would play, you know, an interval and they would say, well, what is this interval? And I would say, well, let's see, it's a C to an A, so it's a sixth. <laughs> so, and I would figure it out that way. But then I learned how to hear things relatively as well with the intervallic relationships. And, and now, you know, I can hear things comfortably either way. So it's, it's definitely a, a, a powerful tool that I'm fortunate to have. The past few decades in the music industry, I'm sure you've, uh been affected by a lot of the changes in the music industry. How have you had to adapt, or uh, from the business side of things, what have you seen change? Well, it's a constant adaptation because the business is, is, is changing radically, and wherever it's going to, it hasn't really arrived there yet. <laughs> We're still in this sort of transitional phase as, as, as everything is switching over to be a, a digital world. Um, and the music business is trying to catch up and sort of reinvent itself. So there's, there's a lot of um, uncharted territory I think uh, as, as we're going through that and it's affected a lot of things I mean records don't sell like they used to um, the streaming uh, and, and and the subscription services are not bringing in the revenue to the to the writers and the artists like like it used to um, that's that's changed so uh, you know it's it's extremely expensive to tour now it's very difficult to make money except for the biggest artists um, so yeah, it's a very, a very different world out there, but it's at the, at the same time as you have those obstacles, you also have this amazing thing called the internet, which, which opened up all kinds of doors uh, in terms of people getting their music out there and being able to, to uh, communicate and, have, and start business relationships with other people all over the world. It's, um, it's, that's opened up, and I'm saying this not like it's new, it's been around for quite a while, obviously, but, but it was a game changer. And, uh, and the world, I think, is still um, coming into its own of, of how to function that way in, in, in the music business. I, I guess speaking of albums, uh, do you hear a lot of clamoring for new music from Billy Joel? Well, everybody would love to hear it, but uh, at this point he's, he's content just uh, doing the shows and uh, doing a few shows a month and, and uh, you know, he's uh, singing and playing great and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but uh, you know, at this time he doesn't have to have any plans to, uh, uh, to do that. Uh, have there been any surprises during a show? I've, I know I've seen certain guests drop in. Yeah, we've had uh, some really... Paul McCartney, right? Yeah, well, sure, we have a lot of guests, uh, you know, and, and that's really kind of uh, fun. The Paul McCartney thing at Shea Stadium was a, was a pinch-yourself moment. Uh, it was, uh, that was really exciting. And the Shea Stadium shows, which, which was one of the highlights, I think, of, uh, of, uh, of my time with, with, with Billy. We had all kinds of uh, guests. Uh, Tony Bennett came up and, uh, and played with us. And... Um, who else was there? Uh, Roger Daltrey, mm -hmm. Steven Tyler, Don Henley, um, John Mellencamp, 
uh, all they all came up and did songs. It, it was a lot of fun. I'm probably leaving out half of them, but it was, but it was really really exciting uh, time to be a part of all that. And we've had some great uh, artists come up and, and join us uh, at the Madison Square Garden shows. Uh, Itzhak Perlman has played with us a couple of mm. times. Uh, that's that's fun. We had John Mayer play with us. Um, uh, Sting did a song with us one time. It's it's so that's you know, really kind of a neat fringe benefit that we get to you know play with all these guys. And uh, as a musical director, is that just something that happens sort of on the fly? Like, hey, I'm in town. Well, we we kind of know about it, you know, usually a few days before, sometimes a few weeks before, but a lot of times it's it's last minute. And then I I'm the I have to coordinate between Billy and between the artists to figure out the songs that we're going to do, song or songs, and then work out what needs to be um, done. Uh, for example, like Steve Miller played with us and. Uh, um, you know, we we wanted to do the Joker with him, one of his classic of classics. Uh, but in order to do that song, he needed to have a certain setup with a slide guitar and the wah wah and all that stuff. So I was the go-between between the crew and and get making sure that he had everything that he needed and would was would be comfortable. And we have a wonderful crew that takes care of all this stuff as well. And uh, so I'm I was sort of the go-between there. And uh, and when Itzhak Perlman joined us, I wrote the charts for him. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of coordinating that needs to be done to to uh, make these things go smooth uh, during the show. Oh, and Chick Corea came up and played oh. with us. That was really exciting. Yeah, so um, so I wrote some charts for him, and uh, and that that was sort of uh, another pinch yourself uh, moment. It was, was really and the thing that was so exciting about that is that Chick was as excited to play with us as we were with him. He was he's actually a, a Billy Joel fan and a great guy, and I've uh, become friends friendly with him over the years. And uh, that was really really a fun night. Uh, when he joined us at Madison Square Garden. What I hear a lot from um, alumni is the importance of networking and seizing opportunities as they arise. Absolutely. Um, how in particular did the um, Billy Joel opportunity come about? And how were you prepared to uh, Through the other gigs that I had had, I started to build a name for myself in the industry. And when the uh, keyboard position opened up in for Billy, um, the uh, I heard about it through the grapevine, and it was kind of an invitation only because he only wanted people who had a lot of experience. Um, so uh, for the audition, it was just me and one other guy that were invited to audition. And uh, uh, so you know, when you get the opportunity to audition, you go got to go the extra yard and uh, do whatever it takes to get the gig. So uh, I was asked to learn four songs, and um, I you know got every sound perfectly and you know figured out the whole thing and 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 i brought i rented a truck and brought all my gear with me and uh you know really did it as though i was uh going to do a show as as well i didn't want to give him an idea of what i was capable of i wanted to show him everything and uh and you know it worked the other guy came in and kind of knew the songs and sort of jammed out the changes a little bit and uh um so you know you gotta do whatever you gotta do to uh to get an edge on the competition yeah, so uh, that's interesting about finding the original sounds. You still do that dialing in like particular synth or, or string sounds from original recordings. Yeah, uh, well, and I, I sometimes I copy them. Sometimes I, I sample them when I do have access to the masters. Masters, but a lot of times, you know, I don't. So I, I do it by ear and I copy them using copy the sounds. Or and sometimes you have to go after that original sound, but then you have to make it bigger than life to be able to uh, translate in an arena or a stadium to the person sitting the furthest seats away. Um, the sounds need. To be bigger than they actually are to be able to uh, to, to to not sound small in the stadium. Uh, so that, so I do that, and that was a that was a skill that I learned here at Berkeley, as a matter of fact, because one of the uh, back in those days there was an ARP Odyssey uh, and, uh, and and an ARP twenty six hundred, and I remember in my synth classes uh, having the the teacher was up there with the synth, and you couldn't see the control panel, and he would play a sound. 
and you had to block diagram how the sound was created. What a great exercise. It's like, you know, ear training for synthesis. So you learned how to identify sounds and how to create them um, on paper and understand what made them work. So now, you know, since, since that and, and, and after honing that skill for many years, any sound that I hear on a record or on any other synth, I, I, I can replicate it because I know what, what, um, how it's put together. And uh, so, so that was a great skill that I learned here in Berkeley. I think stories about the ARP, I guess you had to, uh, they were monophonic, is that right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> they were monophonic. So, since have come a long way <laughs> since that time. Well, they sure have, and it's, and it's funny because in those days, you know, we dreamed about having a synth that you could play a chord on. No one thought of being able to save a sound, you know? I mean, that came along, but when that came along, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. But the concept that uh, now that we work every day of our lives with computers, nobody could even imagine a computer. Because it was, it's just, it didn't exist yet in any way, shape, or form. So, so um, it's really remarkable how far things have come in, in a short period of time. Do you know, um, you know, I've spoken with a few different acts that play huge arena shows, and frequently they play with a click or backing tracks. And do you have to do things like that to translate to such a huge? We have a few things, uh, but not not very much. Billy Joel is all about live performance. He loves live it's got to be live every, every every part that's coming from up there we're playing uh we we do use some um enhanced background vocals but it's only enhancement and if we didn't have it it would still sound great because we have amazing singers in the band uh so so it just kind of thickens it up a little bit um but we're, we're in no way reliant on it um so it's all about live performance and you know all the sounds that i dial up and all the parts that i create everything is played even if it's a little sound effect or it's a little thing here or whatever it's all it's all played um so that's it's it's um i think it's a great way to do it it's, it's funny that that's sort of uh outside the norm now in terms of uh touring mm -hmm. um, to keep it so organic so that's yeah uh, refreshing uh, i know you've kept in touch with c Vi and uh, any other Berkeley connections that you've made through the, over the years? Yeah, I've actually, through your placement department here, have uh, hired quite a few Berkeley alums to work, uh, you know, with me over the years, and uh, um, so it's you know it's a great resource to have here, and people come out of here knowing what they're doing, which is which is great. Uh, so so uh, yeah, I keep keep in touch with a lot of people, and every once in a while I run into people on the road that I didn't actually know here, but you know you have you have that sort of uh, that bond from the fact that we're uh, alumni and, and, and shared this experience, even if we weren't here at the same time period. Um, I know you said what's next. When's the next Billy Joel show? <laughs> next show is March fifteenth in Madison Square Garden, so it's a couple of weeks away. Uh, we're, we're in a period now where we're only doing two shows a month, the Garden and one other one. So right now I have the time and uh, it works out great for me to come up and do stuff like this yeah, and is that that's breaking records I imagine uh, it's amazing <laughs> the previous record for one run in uh, at Madison Square Garden was 12 shows 12 sellouts which was Billy's record uh, I was on the tour that we that we broke that record and now we're at 27 and counting and on this run and for lifetime performances uh, I think we're up around 70 or something which is you know we surpassed Elton John who had the previous record at 64 and just seems to be no end in sight this is really exciting. It's incredible. Um, and of course, for me, I grew up in New Jersey, and when I was a kid, I used to go to concerts at Madison Square Garden. So to be able to play there every month, uh, and it's just, just, it's almost surreal. I mean, this is, this is where I used to go to concerts as a kid. It's a lot of fun. Many thanks to David Rosenthal for taking the time to speak with me. 
Music from today's episode is from his 2004 album with Happy the Man, The Muse Awakens. Be sure to follow Berkeley alumni on your social media network of choice and learn more at alumni.berkeley.edu.